0: and for Wallace Chapman on the panel today. He's having a day out with Wallace Jr. They're checking out the New Zealand Maritime Museum and its beautiful exhibition, Always Song in the Water. And there's something there for children of all ages. Welcome to the panel. Claire Amos and Ian Powell with me this afternoon. In a moment, we'll hear about experiences of loneliness in Aotearoa. I want to know, when do you feel most connected to the people around you and if you're up for it when do you feel lonely or as i've discovered when i didn't realize i was feeling lonely but i actually was mm. but it took a minute and it took more than a minute it took a few days or even earlier this year a couple of weeks for me to realize oh that's what's up but first to this Coalition talks are likely to continue over the weekend, some five weeks from the election, but only two weeks from when the final result was delivered. Winston Peters this afternoon said a few more hours are needed before they get to an agreement. All three negotiating parties have been at the Cordis Hotel in Auckland today, meeting throughout the morning and into the afternoon. Ben Thomas, public relations consultant and former National Government Press Secretary... Tēnā kui, Ben. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Do you think we need an outcome sooner rather than later?
1: Uh, look, I, th- I think in the, the scale of how governments operate, a few days here or there, you know, isn't the end of the world. Um, I suspect that sort of... Um, you know, reports. I think there was a Talbot Mills poll saying there was growing public frustration about the lack of formation of a government. I, I honestly think that if you didn't actually have uh, media attention on it, if people if there were no news stories about it for a week, uh, people wouldn't notice much of a difference, and uh, they would probably just get on with things.
0: But compared to other years, it seems more complex, doesn't it? With three personalities and priorities in the mix,
1: three sets yeah. of
0: priorities, I should say. There
1: yeah look certainly and and not just policy priorities as well i mean there there' are obviously you know very much differences between ACT and New Zealand First in particular, uh, where sort of ACT you know tends to be more sort of you know uh, rogenomics uh, classical classical liberal or you know market based and, and they really look for sort of deregulation, uh, smaller government and New Zealand First basically pulling in the exact opposite direction with national in the middle. Now overall you'd expect that that leads to a government staying still, but of course you know, that's not satisfactory for the parties in a political sense because they need to be able to deliver wins to their constituents. So it certainly is, it, it is a pretty complex sort of uh, exercise of, of, of slotting, you know, the various sort of wins into place where you can and resolving the differences. Um, but look, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that an extra two days is sort of uh, is, is, is really make or break.
0: Do you think progress is being made, Ben?
1: Well, look, we you know we only have the word of the uh, the political leaders. They certainly seem to think that it's uh, it, it's 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 uh, taking place. We've heard that for a, a while now. It's you know the, the deal always seems to be a couple of days or a few hours away. Um, David Seymour introduced the metaphor this morning of we're just about ready to uh, set the five meter scrum. Um, which is that's an interesting that's a new rugby metaphor uh, because it's not clear are the three of them packing down together in the front row are they scrummaging against each other. It's curious imagery. There's five meter line, is it? Yeah. Um, Ian. So look, it, it has oh, been a
0: little. No, no. Oh, where I... you go. Finish up. Finish up there because I want Ian to ask you a question.
1: <laughs> I, I, I think I know. I, I, I think that's almost symbolic. You know, it, it is a little difficult to interpret. Uh, you know, the signals that we've been hearing from the camps about just how far away they are.
0: Ian, would you like to see a result, or do you think it's important to take time at the
2: start? No, it's important to take time. Look, I'm a bit ho-hum about this. It takes what it's required. Um, and um, each election, you can't compare a, a, a government formation from one election to the other. They all have their own specific particular dynamics. I've also, uh, and I compare it to something I'm familiar with: collective bargaining and between unions and employers. And that at that point in time, there is a relative level playing field between the unions and the employers. And, and that's a that's a that's a moment in time. Uh, forming a government and negotiations between potential coalition parties has a certain similarity to this. This is when all the parties have more of a level playing field than they're probably going to come, going to have later on. It also reminds me a lot of the health system too where I learnt that in fact influence is more powerful than formal power. As a lot of it is relational. And finally, i just throw into the mix in this the unfortunate term that uh, Christopher Luxon has used about his experience in negotiating acquisitions. I don't think that ACT and New Zealand First would ever like to be considered acquisitions. And... Um, uh, and it may well form a remarkable ability to actually unite the two of them um, as a very odd couple. Your thoughts Ben
1: no i I think that 's an excellent point um, you know what and I think that that will be playing particularly on the minds of Winston Peters and uh, David Seymour. You know, every time New Zealand First has gone into a governing arrangement with a larger party, so that was ninety six, two thousand and five, and two thousand and seventeen. In the next election, it's fallen below the five percent threshold, and twice that's meant that it's just out of parliament altogether. Mm. And so they, 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 you know, Winston Peters changes it up every time he goes into a governing arrangement. He changes certain settings to try and avoid that the next time, and I think that part of it this time seems to be right from the get-go, saying that he's going to differentiate himself from, you know, the major party of government, you know, all the way through. And we've seen that with the sort of kind of merry chase that he's led, uh, you know, that he's led the other parties across the country to try and come to the negotiating table. And he's not at any point going to sort of say, yeah, I, I've been acquired, we've, we've merged in.
0: Claire, are we just... You know, New Zealand voters feeling left out. I,
3: th- I think there is a little bit of feeling left out. I know myself as a, a an educator. I've been following the education policy of every respective party in the lead up to the election, and in my mind, I'm so, I'm often having conversations going, I wonder which bargaining chips they're using. You know, which which are the sp- specific policies that each party might be wedded to trying to get across the line. And obviously, I I think more in the education space. What's he, what's your sense been in terms of those, those sort of policy bargaining chips that Winston and um, David Seymour might be trying to get across the line in terms of policies?
1: So, yeah, so i mean what's what's actually also marked out these negotiations is that we do know a lot more about what's being discussed mm. um, than we do than we have in the past you know the sort of the the bidding war between national and labor in 2017 was basically just inside a black box and details only sort of trickled out you know months years later um you know, here we we understand that the, the sticking points seem to be that National doesn't want to give Act its treaty referendum. Perfectly understandable. Uh, the politics of that for a first term government uh, would you know would just subsume their entire agenda and 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 pretty much all the political capital that as a government they needed to run. Uh, but but you know it was a key plank for act and they will want they will want some sort of concessions on that um, and new Zealand first have actually provided some of the clues as to what those might be you know talking about a sort of a reset of some aspects of sort of treaty related policy um then on the other hand you've got national uh you know the the cena qua non you know the the absolute you know inarguable thing for them is their tax cut package that was Centrepiece of their, their campaign, uh, and both the other parties, you know, a few worries about how that's going to be funded. I mean, they don't so much have a worry about that. They say funded by cutting, you know, presenting a list of departments that they want sort of <laughs> removed from the face of the earth. But then that causes its own tensions within, you know, with National and New Zealand first. So, it's essentially basically, uh, you know, in Christopher Luxon's uh, words, you find out what the big rocks are and you see if you can trade a number of medium-sized rocks in return.
0: Mm. We're going to leave it right there. Perfect finish there, Ben. Thanks so much. That's Ben Thomas. And Ben Thomas is a public relations consultant and former National Government Press Secretary. 16 minutes past four. And great feedback to your I've been thinking, Claire. Get rid of MMP. The tail is wagging the dog. Let's return to first past the post. It's one texter. MMP's much better than first past the post, says another. Just needs a 3.5% entry threshold. And for transparency... During coalition negotiations, you would agree with that, Claire?
3: Yeah, I would actually, and I, I know that within the Australian system there is some voter um, contributions or involvement in the coalition makeup. They do; they are able to influence. I don't know the exact ins and outs, but it'd be interesting to see what that would look like. Indeed. Mm.
0: Well, the World Health Organization is making loneliness a global health priority, and this week it's launching a new commission on social connection. Over the next three years, the Commission will focus on ways to address the pressing health threat of a global epidemic of loneliness. The plan is to review the latest science, come up with ways to help people deepen their connections to others. Dr Holly Walker is former Deputy Director of the Helen Clark Foundation and the co-author of Reconnecting Aotearoa, Loneliness and Connection in the Age of Social Distance. Mm. Kia ora Holly. Your new book explores both the data and experiences of loneliness in Aotearoa. What did you find?
4: Yes, well, it's great to see the WHO recognise the significant public health and policy challenge of loneliness because we certainly found that it is it is very much a public health and public policy challenge here in Aotearoa, New Zealand as well. It actually existed and was a significant challenge prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, but it's also very much the case that the pandemic has um, exacerbated and sharpened it as an issue for many people. Um, And in terms of of what we found here in New Zealand in particular, um, there are definitely certain groups, I mean, feeling lonely is a normal part of the human experience it's important to acknowledge that and we'll all feel lonely at some point at different parts of our lives but when you feel lonely for a very long time very intensely it's it's very bad for your health and well-being and there are definitely certain groups who are much more vulnerable to it or prone to it here in Aotearoa and that includes young people, uh, sole parents, disabled people, Um, people on very low incomes and new migrants. So it's something we should be thinking about really carefully as both a social issue but also as a health and policy challenge.
0: How could public policy be used
4: to make people
0: less lonely, do you think?
4: Mm, Yeah, great question because I think it's really important um, to say up front it's not about the government intervening and trying to sort of... um, shape people's social lives or um, artificially push people together to create social connections obviously those are things that emerge organically through our daily lives um and it's not the right space for the government to be playing in in terms of trying to sort of help individual people forge connections. But what I think good public policy can do is create the conditions that support social connection in our communities and support people to form and strengthen their own connections. Um, And those are things like making sure that everybody has adequate income because um, when you don't have enough money, it's very difficult to do anything socially. Uh, It's things like thinking about the designs of our cities and towns and making sure that our housing and our public spaces and our transport system uh, encourages connection and community. Uh, and it's also things like thinking about digital connectivity and making sure we don't have a digital divide and that we don't have um, big inequities in terms of who can access online connection and who can't.
0: Ian, where would you start in addressing loneliness and oh. supporting connection?
2: Well, it is tr- it is actually difficult, uh, but I guess I would have probably two initial things although I appreciate it's not, <clears throat> not a complete response um, but one is to ensure that housing is actually designed to more designed to uh, uh, to, to actually encourage interaction between um, neighborhoods within neighborhoods etc within communities uh, rather than pointing the other direction. and the other one though is the connectedness in terms of beginning with public transport. Um, so that people are in a position to actually get out and about at low mm. cost, uh, whether it's shopping, whether it's uh, movies, recreation, anyth- anything really. I mean, I live in the Kapiti Coast, and uh, we have an amazing array of parks where you can and beaches where you can walk and, and connect with people accidentally, as we talked about earlier. Um, mm. But you need, and, um, many people will need public transport, accessible public transport, in order to do that. So it's those kind of things that uh, enable people to get together in public transport and housing design to begin with, but clearly digital as well.
4: Yeah, I think you're right, Ian, and and the research would really support both of those as being really important parts of of the solution. Those incidental connections that we make, you know, it might be chatting to someone actually on the bus or the person who makes our coffee or someone we pass on the beach. Although those aren't deep social connections, they're actually really important cumulatively and the hmm. feeling that people have of being part of a community and connected with each other. And of course, you know, affordability and accessibility and having living and housing that supports you to interact with your neighbours is, is really critical.
0: Hmm. Claire, the school environment, you know it well.
3: Yeah, and I think this made me. Um, you talked about one of my favourite topics, closing the digital divide. Um, and I, I've I noticed as a school that is very good in the digital space with absolutely one-to-one um, device, and we worked with all the the home, you know, our families to make sure our homes had connection. We worked and designed a lot. Um, on the social cohesion and the social connection that young people um, had throughout lockdowns and that served us really, really well in terms of the, the mental health and the, the sense of well-being. but also it helped our young people to continue to stay connected um, as a bit of an ecosystem and it progressed their learning as well so um, I, I can't talk more about the importance. I hate that it's a postcode lottery whether our young people had that connection or not and the other couple of quick things I'd like to add is my goodness can we make sure we keep investing in things like libraries. I think those community spaces where people come together is hugely important, and I would love to argue for the reintroduction of night schools because I think um, it's a way of bringing communities together in the evenings, in a space that's not a social necessity. It is social, but it's a learning space. It's not being at a bar or at a restaurant. Um, it's educational, but it is a social cohesion and a social connection. So bring back night school. I think it was a really neat way of connecting people. And often if they're lonely, people could connect in those sort of um, opportunities as well. I've just had a text to come in. Living rural can be very lonely, especially
0: with the price of gas being a hindrance for driving anywhere to socialise. Holly, what did you find?
4: Yes, that's that's absolutely right. I think any any kind of um, physical isolation, as well as social or digital isolation, can exacerbate loneliness. And as you say, if you're in a remote location where um, you're not going out and about in the way we talked about before, those incidental connections don't happen. And so, in fact, a, a digital connection in those rural locations can also be really important. And I'd I'd second what Claire said about the libraries too. You know, we, we heard um, stories, especially during lockdown, um, when you think about the digital divide, many people rely, if they don't have a broadband connection at home, they might have an internet-enabled device like a smartphone, but if they don't have broadband at home, they actually rely on public spaces like libraries that provide rec free wi-fi for their digital connection as well and so when those were closed during lockdown that was a double form of disconnection so those we really you know public spaces whether it's our streets our neighbourhoods our housing or our social community facilities like libraries are really important
0: thank you so much holly dr holly walker former deputy director of the helen clark foundation rnt national it's 25 minutes past four Ian, let's go back to the Luddite movement because we cut you off because those pips, they have a way of intercepting, right? And before we get into what I've been chatting about,
2: (laughs) away you go. Well, look, I was just... uh, The pips picked me to my punchline. The Luddites were essentially not anti-technology, not anti-new technology. They were anti-exploitation by a particular group of employers, large mill owners. Uh, They were popular and they were effective. Uh, The law that prevented them from, that pushed them down the track of illegal methods, smashing um, uh, machine looms, uh, uh, was subsequently repealed. So all I really want to say is that Luddites, they were great people, they were courageous, they were popular, it was a very progressive social movement, and they were not anti-technology. That's my sermon. (laughs) it's fantastic and we've had
0: a texter come in because clearly they were aware of the fact that the pips beat you to it Mm. this texter says regarding the luddite movement there is a wonderful book called blood in the machine that was released a few months back it details the original rise of the luddites and overlays it with our current age it sounds like this book might be on your panelists reading
2: list It is now.
0: It is now. Well, look, here's the thing. I've been thinking about Christmas decorations. I didn't really think I was until I came into the office this morning and now I've become fixated. Are yours up already? Are you thinking about getting that box out of the basement? Or is it way too soon? Like, when is too soon too soon? Are Christmas decorations a commercial trap? Or do they signal ceremony and celebration for you? I personally have not had a Christmas tree for years, but I do love a good wreath. I have a preference for warm white fairy lights (laughs) and candles, and I have a dear friend who sent me a couple of candles. They're battery-operated. They flicker a little bit. I place them in the window (laughs) so I can see them as I come on the drive. There we go. Maybe TMI, Claire, is it too soon for Christmas decorations? It's never
3: too soon for Christmas decorations. We have a constant chat amongst our girlfriends and we've often joked about the fact that the Halloween decorations go down and the Christmas decorations come up. Um, no, I love it. It's about joy. It's about celebration and a bit of frivolity and my goodness if there's one thing we need at the moment it's a bit of frivolity and you know and actually we should be thinking about sustainable Christmas directions. So if you want to avoid the trap of it being a commercial exercise, I mean I wheel out the same stuff, I use recycled stuff you know, I use vintage stuff and I love all of the ragtag joy of filling my house with stuff and sparkly lights, I don't know how anyone can find it um, anything other than an absolute source of joy
1: (laughs) Ian,
2: tree no tree (laughs) Uh, I think Claire has just met that person (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'm a kind of, well, to be fair to myself, I'm sort of kind of an agnostic bore on the issue. Um, I mean, I appreciate that it is a time of joy, it's a time of family connection uh, or reconnection. Uh, It's all those things. Uh, But um, um, in terms of, you know, it's sort of. It's more in terms of sales and purchases and things. Close to Christmas as possible to take advantage of the sales, but not so mean-spirited as to wait until the Boxing Day sales the following day. Um, and um, I guess that's kind of the approach.
3: <laughs> I'm disappointed. How about the cake? Can we that? just have a
2: moment <laughs> with the cake? Well, I've never baked a Christmas cake in my life, and mm. if I did, I'm 100% confident that no one would enjoy eating it. Uh, uh, but I do like uh, a good Christmas cake, and I have had them. Got to know. clear.
3: Oh, my mum has always, she's baked the family Christmas cake, and she's got a couple of friends that she always does the Christmas cake for. She is already soaking the fruit. And already getting ready to do the spicy nuts. Mm. We do these beautiful spices. Well, I say we. She does them. I eat them. Um, These incredible spiced nuts every year as well. And my goodness, it's going to be a devastating day when that supply dries up.
2: I I am intrigued by the amount of skill that actually goes into the making of a a Mm. Christmas cake. It is quite extraordinary. I've always found it hard to believe, but it certainly, certainly is extraordinary. And you
0: appreciate it, which is good to hear. Yeah. And I'm sure those people who are out there have got them stashed around the house waiting for the icing, <laughs> or people who are looking at the clock and realizing, have I got enough time to really do a good job?
3: Mm.